This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Uh, Interestingly enough, yesterday my wife and I celebrated 28 years of marriage. Now, if you're thinking DT got some strong Michael W. Smith vibes circa 1992, you would be right. Uh, My vest game was strong. A plus vest game. Um, This was our engagement photo, as I I think, right? Um, Funny enough, she hasn't changed at all, so I don't know if there's anything to immortality or any of that kind of thing, but... Uh, I think it's the Viking blood in her. I don't, she's a Norwegian. Do you guys, anybody know about the North Dakota? Anybody in here from North Dakota? North Dakota, anyone, hey? <laughs> that accent is charming for about a day. <laughs> when we would visit there with family, uh, it was really cute. And by the way, Shannon could slip back into it just like that, just hanging out. And everybody up there is named Gordy and Marge. And, uh, <laughs> can I make you some eggs, Darren? Where's Gordy? Is it his Marge coming? Like, um, eventually you're like, can everybody just stop doing that? But there's something about that that apparently breeds longevity. The cold, uh, frigid seas of Norway, I don't know. Uh, we didn't have those in Nebraska, clearly. Um, but it was, this picture was taken... Uh, at an interesting time in our lives because Shannon had, we had dated for two years before this and then she dumped me like a bad habit, like done with you. It was a, uh, it's not, it's, do you know about the, it's not you, it's me talk? Yeah, I got the, it's not you, it's me, which I'm thinking, of course it's me, but she was being nice to me. But at that moment, um, there were things that were happening in her family, things that were uh, very complex, and, and she just needed some time. And, and so I actually, unfortunately, speaking of Michael W. Smith, had tickets. Uh, it was, Jerry, it was to the, uh, the Place in This World tour, the, the big, huge tour. DC Talk was on the front end of it. And I had like a week to find another date or something. And, and then Shannon was trying to be nice to not use me for the for the ticket, and I did find a date, I, yeah, I was swiped right and found her, she, uh, anyway, she, <laughs> hey, just so you know, you kids know that you, before, you, you didn't get to swipe nothing, man, they would slam the phone on you, they would hang up, they go, there was no swiping, man, you, <laughs> you put yourself out there and, you know, fully publicly humiliated if it didn't go well, so I didn't see her again for like two years, um, when she, you know, sent me out to pasture. Back then, kids, we didn't get to, like, stalk their snap or instas. We had to actually drive by their house. In this case, an apartment. And uh, we'd look to see if the light was on see if there's any extra cars in the parking lot, you know, like, uh, eventually I stopped doing that, um, moved on with my life. And about two years later, I 
uh, was at the, the mall, because we used to go to the mall. Remember the mall? There was a thing called the mall. Well, we would go to the mall, and she was managing a shoe store, and I, I, I saw her, it, had been the, it would literally have been the first time in, in almost two years, and uh, I was immediately re-smitten, and uh, we were married six months later. We had, well, there was a reason we got married so quickly. I was afraid she was going to come to her census. You know what I mean? Like, if I'm not going to give her another chance to, uh, like, because, I mean, and in, in fairness, as, as impossibly good-looking as I thought I was, I, um, I didn't have a plan. Like, my plan, I hope something neat happens. I was, but you could sum up my life plan with that, man. I sure hope something neat happens, because I don't really have a plan. I mean, I was playing bass guitar for crying out loud. That's like my nightmare is that my daughter brings home a 20-year-old bass player. Like, that's <laughs> all due respect. Sometimes, Adam, it works out sometimes. The tr- but the trouble was, is I was no Adam Nitty, man. I was like looking around at guys like Jackie Street going, I need to get a job because that's not going to work for me. So she marries me. She says, yes. And 28 years later, we are here today. And... Uh, the- and here's what I, 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 I share that this morning, mostly because I wanted you to you know, make fun of my hair, but um, the lessons of life of like when you are, Jesus taking you into a journey that you don't see any way out of, or you think that I, I don't have any control over any of this, and, and, and the sovereignty and the kindness of God, how even when you don't even know that that's what you're doing, putting your hands into his, your, 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 my life into his hands and trusting him, this weird thing happens and that he just works stuff out the way that he wants it to be. And if you'll trust him, one of the greatest prayers you could ever pray is, God, give me whatever I would ask for if I knew everything that you knew. It's a really simple prayer. And the disciples in John 6, by the way, made out of chapter 5, right? In chapter 6, the disciples now are going with Jesus across the lake, okay? Their lives have been upended. They don't know anything about the future, about what's to happen. They're putting their hands and the, you know, their lives in the hands of Jesus, and in this case, a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And they have gone across the Sea of Galilee, they've landed in a town called Bethsaida, not to be confused with Bethesda, but Bethsaida, and this is the hometown of Philip, it's the hometown of Andrew and Peter, and as soon as they get there, there are thousands of people following them across the sea, now gathering around, and Jesus is looking at the crowd, and he's asking the disciples, what are we going to do? How do we take care of these people that are here? And he talks to Andrew, talks to Philip, and he's about to do something amazing. And that's where we're going to start in verse 10. That he said, have the people sit down. He's talking to the disciples now. Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. Kind of honestly, in Galilee, if you put a, a, a sea right outside our door here, it kind of looks like this, like this hillside that you see over with the cattle farm. It looks a lot like that, like this grassy area that, remember, it looks down into the sea. It's a place like this. Have them sit down. There's about 5,000 men. That means there are probably a minimum of 15,000 people total, maybe up to 25, lots of children. And Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. 
When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. If you're a Bible underliner, that's one to underline because that's a promise for your whole life. Nothing will be wasted. So they gathered them, filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. That's John chapter six, verses 10 through 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're gonna approach your word today with humility, approach your word with expectation. Your word that is a lamp, that it's a light, it always has been, it is, and it always will be for us. Each of us today, Lord, has a path that we're on and might look different from someone sitting right next to us, but your light is the same light for my path as it is for their path. Would you speak to us today, Lord? Would you move inside of us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Nothing is wasted. Not my Michael W. Smith concert tickets in 1992. Not your drive to church this morning. God has this way of putting it all in a basket and wasting none of it, none of it. See, he asks Peter, or I mean, he asks Philip, and then he asks Andrew, and they're talking. But what's interesting, verse six tells us, he asked Philip, what are we gonna do? But Jesus always says, Jesus already knew. He said, I was just gonna test him, but he, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to do to Philip, to the people that had gathered that day. Jesus knew what he was going to do in them, in Philip and Andrew. He knew what he was going to do through them. And that is true 2,000 years ago, and it is true today, December 4th of 2022, that Jesus knows what he is going to do to you, in you, and through you. When I say, what is Jesus gonna do to you? Look what he did to these disciples. It says in verse one of chapter six that sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. For those of you going to Israel with me in February, we're actually going to stay three nights in Tiberias, this Tiberias, it's amazing. But think with me, if you're, if you're a little sleepy, wake up and then you can go right back to sleep. But I just want you to hear this. This miracle, besides the resurrection, is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. All four of them record this miracle. Probably many reasons, one of which is that there were 25,000 people there. Everybody, it was huge. Most of the miracles that have happened up until this point were for one person or, or nobody knew about it. Or, but this one was a wide open, ring the bell miracle that thousands and thousands of people were gonna see right before Passover headed right into Jerusalem to tell everybody what they just saw. But the beauty of us knowing that this was in all the other gospels is that we know all, uh, all the other details surrounding it. You may not know this, but in the olden days, the news reporters actually used to just tell you what happened. Did you know that? They never told you how to feel about it. They didn't throw adjectives in front of words to try to make you mad to click on it. They used to just tell you what happened. And so the four gospels 
are like Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 5, and then the, the local Fox affiliate, the four networks, reporting on this story. And when you see that happen, you, like this one maybe will focus on this detail, this one focuses on another detail. But all together, you sort of get the whole story. So John just says, after this, you know, we see the miracles we saw last week, but what Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, after this was, when John the Baptist, his cousin who was, like cousin that was like his same age, they were raised like brothers in the same family. They, were, they knew each other. They were basically six months apart. And what Matthew 14 tells us is that John the Baptist had been telling Herod Antipas, who was the governor of that region in the connector to Rome, that his marriage to his brother's wife was adultery and blasphemous and a disgrace. For those of you that have maybe thought the Bible never tells us, or we, you see no examples in the New Testament of somebody speaking out, speaking up on behalf of, of purity, speaking up on behalf of God's laws and calling sin, sin in the culture and in our government. John the Baptist did not get that memo and apparently didn't read that blog. And at the same time, we have to know that when you speak up like that, it's not necessarily going to be welcomed with open arms. You know what I mean? They're not like, oh, so oh, didn't think of that. I shouldn't have committed adultery. Now I get it. Thank you for telling me that. That's not how that's going to go. And what Matthew 14 tells us is that the girl's name was Herodias, that he had married, the, the brother's wife. And she was seething with anger at John the Baptist. She wanted him dead. Her new husband, on the other hand, is a politician. He had to keep Rome happy, and he had to keep the Jewish people happy. And about six years later, he's going to just blow the whole thing, and Caligula is going to banish him to a country called Gaul, which was the Roman equivalent of getting sent to Siberia. So he was in between a rock and a hard place, which is what happens when you try to stand in the middle of a tennis court. That's where the ball bounces. Worst place to stand. Front or back, take a position. Don't stand in the middle. So he stands in the middle, trying to keep the front happy and the back happy. And his wife, who knows nothing of politics, just wants this guy to shut up so that she can have her new life and her new kingdom. So a party is thrown, Matthew 14 tells us, and the daughter Herodias, which is the daughter of the former wife, the, the brother, right? The brother that he took the wife from. That daughter, uh, show, and I don't know, uh, just a party, and it says that she came in and she performed, she was dancing, and it went really well, and I'm sure the drinks were flowing, and at some point Herod's like, okay, whatever you want, this is so amazing, you can have whatever you want to this, to this daughter, and she asks her mother, what should I ask for? And she says, John the, Heb John the Baptist's head on a platter. And now you find Herod in between a rock and a hard place, quite literally. It says that he was scared. Matthew 14 tells us he was scared because John was popular with the people. I believe it's Mark 6 that tells us he was scared because he knew that John was a holy and a righteous man. And he didn't want to do this, but he had to. He made this promise and this oath. So he kills John the Baptist on the spot, has his head brought in on a platter, and celebrates that night. 
And it says in Matthew 14, and then John's disciples went and told Jesus. So we know, number one, that Jesus was grieving. His disciples were grieving. His friend, his cousin, his long-time confidant has been executed at the age of 30 years old. We also know because of Mark that the 12 had just been out into the countryside praying for people, doing the miraculous, preaching the kingdom of God. They had just gotten back to Galilee as well and were reporting to Jesus what had happened. And because of the Luke version, or the Mark version and the Matthew version, we know that while they're trying to say, they're, so they're trying to grieve John, they're trying to talk about, and this, these are all the things that we saw happen. And it says that they didn't even have time to eat. They were hungry. And Jesus, and they couldn't eat because people kept coming. That people were bothering them. They kept trying to get them to pray for them. They kept wanting more from Jesus. So in that, after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of Galilee. The others tell us that they were tired, they were grieving, and they were hungry, and so they get in a boat to go to the other side so they could finally get some rest. And what did they find on the other side? 25,000 people. <laughs> Jesus knew there were going to be 25,000 people. He knew. He did that to these 12 disciples. He did it to them. He's stretching them. He's moving them into something they didn't think that they could do because you can do more than what your mind will lie to you and tell you what you can do. If there's one thing that my brothers and sisters in other nations look at us in America and say is you guys are a little squishy. You're a little soft. You're a little whiny. I, I, I do not say that. I would never say that. My friends in Haiti say that. You know what I'm saying? I would never say such things about myself. Um, but, but you see what I'm saying? Like, you can do more. And by the way, any CrossFit coach sitting in this room will tell you the same thing. When they put that thing on the board, that little torture chamber list thing that they're putting up there, you can't do that except that you can do that. And the thing that Jesus did to his disciples, he would do over and over again. We're going to see it again next week. He pushed them further than they thought they could go. He nudged them where they didn't think they could handle it. And he'll do the same exact thing to you and to me, whether we like it or not, because he loves us. That coach that you had in high school that you loved and hated, because he pushed you, because he nudged you. He yanked you out of the thing that you thought and made you do, and you could do it. When Shannon gave me the it's not you, it's me speech, she had prayed about that. Holy Spirit led her to do that. She didn't do that to me. Jesus did that to me. And I did not like it one bit. 
But what I was learning is that Jesus did that to me because not only what he wanted to do to me, it was stuff that he wanted to do in me. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Like just everybody get one bite, it's going to take a half year's pay just to get a bite for everyone. Another of his disciples, Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's brother, spoke. Here's a boy with five small loaves and fishes, but, but how far will this go among so many? Jesus, remember, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But do you see like what he's doing in them? They're having to think out loud, answer questions. How are, I have to, and, and candidly, one of the greatest things that I think they're doing right here that he's doing to them is eventually they're having to admit the one thing that you and I hate to admit, and that is that I can't do this. This is out of my control. I have to admit my need for Jesus, my need for a father, the need for the Holy Spirit in my life and until I admit half a year's wages to just get one bite, until I finally admit that, look, I, I need to empty myself out. And by the way, when Jesus nudged them to the other side, that's what's happening inside of them. They're learning that I can't do this on my own. He puts you in a position to see that Jesus wants to move in you, change you, grow you, strengthen you, build faith inside of you. And by the way, uh, at 51 years old, I'm, I'm happy to report or not happy depending on how you look at it, it doesn't stop. This isn't a one and done. You mark it on your little test in the kingdom of God and you move on with your life. This is just the life of walking with Jesus. It's just it. That's why when you hang out with brothers and sisters in their 70s and 80s who have followed Jesus their whole lives, one of the greatest crimes in our country is the way that we take our seniors and our folks that have followed Jesus and we put them away and we don't want to listen to them because, okay, boomer. I don't know how to use my phone, <laughs> but I know how to walk with Jesus. And when I look around a room and I see brothers and sisters who have followed Jesus their whole lives, what have they seen over and over again is what Jesus did to them and what Jesus did in them. And those stories are stories we desperately need to hear because those stories prove that if Jesus would do it for them, he'll do it for you. The faith of brothers and sisters, I think I see Jim Weidman back there. Brother Jim Weidman, I've known Jim since 1989, and I've seen Jesus move in the Weidman family over and over and over and over again. And the wisdom that comes from following Jesus that long, Eugene Peterson refers to it as long obedience in the same direction. When you surround yourself with that kind of wisdom, we need it in our lives personally, we need it in our churches corporately what Jesus wants to do in you, strengthen you, grow faith in you, mature you. And the way that's going to happen is not to look at the CrossFit wall, but to do what's on the CrossFit wall. Right. And he loves you enough to continue to nudge it in you because he doesn't want to just do something to you, doesn't want to just do something in you. He wants to move through you. You see, at the very end of this passage, the lowest form of following Jesus is the 
what Jesus can do for you stuff. They see him do this miracle, and the very first thing they want to now do is go to Jerusalem, overthrow the government so that Jesus can be their king. What can Jesus do for me? And what, when Jesus starts hearing that kind of talk, he disappeared. He withdrew. If the only reason I ever got married to Shannon is what she could do for me, that's not a marriage. That's a business relationship. Jesus is disinterested in a business relationship with you. He paid way too great of a price just to be your genie to rub the bottle so a miracle could come out for what he can do for you. He came so he could have a relationship with you. And so what can he do through you? Look what he did to the disciples, man. These 12 disciples that he's now pushed to the other side of the sea. They're hangry. Chick-fil-A is closed. They're exhausted, surrounded by people. Like Firefest is happening right in front of their eyes. Obscure reference if you're in your 20s, you know what I'm talking about. But what are we going to do? Jesus said there's plenty of grass. What do we read? He took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he began to multiply it. Now again, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and Luke chapter 9, I think, 12. The other versions of this say that it was the disciples that Jesus said, break up this group of people into 50s, spread them out, organize this, and then you guys are going to be the ones handing out the bread to the people. Could Jesus have just made it rain Panera? Yes. He could have done the miraculous and made some of Natalie Murray's sourdough bread and just passed it out to the whole of the room. But he didn't. Because one of the greatest joys that our Father has, one of the greatest joys that Jesus has is working through us. The 300 slave families that were set free, Jesus could have set those free without you, but he loves you so much that he let you do it with him. He did it through you. By the time this year ends with the crisis that has unfolded in just Haiti alone this year, you will have provided hundreds of thousands of meals to people who are in famine-like conditions, whose governments are impotent to help them. You have paid for that. Jesus said, I'll invite you to do that. How awesome is God that he lets us do that? And if you feel like, oh, I feel guilty because I'm not supposed to feel good about that. I'm not supposed to, I'm supposed to be quiet and, and demure. And 2 Corinthians 9, when Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver, he's talking about that in the context of giving money to the saints in Jerusalem who were poor, who were in famine and in persecution. And he's even saying, in this church here, you guys are amazing. Corinth, I, you guys are always so radically generous. We, I love it. Don't, don't let them prove me wrong. You're going to be the, the church that's going to come through. And here's why. Because it feels so awesome to help people who are in need. God loves the cheerful giver. God doesn't just ask for your money. He's like, I'm going to give you something to be cheerful about. We're going to actually together change this world, make an impact in this nation together. He wants to do that through you. That's pretty awesome when you think about it. I mean, as a church, 
Jesus went to a whole lot of trouble, didn't he? I mean, what with being crucified and all? Resurrected? Just so we could go to church? <laughs> Doesn't that feel like a, a whole lot of work, if that's the only thing? We can go to the VFW. I mean, we can go, there are clubs. We don't need another club. No, no, we don't need another club. We needed a kingdom. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are his kingdom here on earth. And he, just like these disciples, nothing has changed. He wants to continue to move through you and through me. I mean, Kathleen, he could write songs. He doesn't need to have you, but he lets you do it. Like, how cool is God? You know what I mean? How kind is that? He, he lets you get to be a part of that? I mean, Matt, you could, could sing anywhere, and I mean, could literally walk downtown and get a general market record contract, whatever. But Jesus said, I, I'm going to give you that voice so that when you sing, you are a conduit of Jesus through your music. Jesus can write songs, but he lets you do it. Pretty cool, isn't it? Because he wants to do this through you. Now, most of us don't get to do something on a stage where everybody gets to see us. Most of us, most of us don't get the benefit of, I, I think I saw David and Helen come in this morning, but most of us don't get the benefit of living long enough on this life to see the impact of a ministry that is now on a stage impacting thousands and thousands and thousands of people around here and around the world. Most of us don't get that in our lives. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they refer to this bread and this fish, something is missing. There is no mention of this little boy. By the way, I don't know if this will mess with your theology or not, but even when in John, when it mentions the bread, it doesn't say that Jesus asked him for it. He just took it. Now imagine you're this little guy and that happened, but you saw how, the miracle. Like that was incredible. Like the, you, you'll never not know that happened in your life. And he walked out of there that day for all we know, completely anonymous and nobody knew that it was his bread and his loaves. Nobody. So imagine the very earliest gospel that was written was Mark and this young guy was probably still alive at that point. And imagine he, he gets that scroll, he makes it to his church and he's opening it up Reading going, oh, and this is the part, yeah, this is the part with the fish and the loaves and the, and Mark says, and there were five loaves and two fishes the disciples brought to him. No mention of him. You think that might have, I mean, I don't know if it hurt his feelings. I can tell you my shallow heart, it would have ticked me off. <laughs> Finally, I'm going to get some recognition. And the disciples brought the, the loaves and the fish. Years later, Luke was written, debate whether it was Matthew or Luke written first, but let's say within a few years they're both written, and both times, you know, he goes down to his local Lifeway and he picks up the new gospel, and he, he opens it up and he's reading, and oh man, finally, this is, the Matthew guy, like that guy is a detailed dude, he's going to get it figured out, and there's no mention, the disciples brought the loaves and the fish. <sighs> 
Luke, he's a doctor. That guy, he kept track of everything. He's surely going to mention it. Luke only gives it four sentences. The whole thing, four sentences. No mention of a little boy and his loaves and his fishes. The vast majority of us, this side of heaven, the obedience that Jesus asks of us will never be seen or celebrated by the masses. It just won't. But imagine if this little boy managed to be alive in AD 95, which is when most people believe the Gospel of John was written 60 years after this happens. And he opens it up and maybe by then he's just completely given up on the dream. And finally he reads it and says, and then this little boy with his loaves and his fishes and his reminder, he didn't get a name, there's no name, it's just his little boy, but a reminder that even though nobody else saw that day, maybe a handful of disciples and Jesus saw through 60 years of living, if nobody ever saw it, the one person that he knows did see it was God. He saw it all. The only eyes in the universe that even matter saw it all. Saw that his little basket, when he trusted his little basket with his loaves and fishes to Jesus, that none of it was wasted. Jesus didn't ask him. I don't know, maybe he felt kind of ripped off at first. Like, wait, are you just gonna come take my stuff? You big burly cussing fishing people? Like, I came here to sell this stuff. This is my, this is my money for the day. You just gonna take it? That's what Jesus did to him. But what Jesus did through him was feed thousands and thousands of people and create a story, a, a miracle that to this day Hundreds of millions of people have had their faith affected because of this miracle from his little basket. None of it was wasted in the baskets that were picked up. None of it was wasted in his life. And none of it is going to be wasted in your baskets either. None of it was wasted in a little basket that was put in a river in the Nile River in Egypt. A mom and a dad in Exodus 2 with their little baby. I've been to the Nile River in Uganda, and Ethan can confirm, and Anna, crocodiles everywhere. Putting your baby in a basket is like putting a little chicken, like a chicken basket in there and setting it down the river. In that moment, they put their little baby in a basket. What God did to them that day would have been terrifying. They would have felt horrible. I have literally let my child send him up the river. only to find out later that that little boy, none of it was wasted. None of it was wasted. Moses' entire life spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years in a wilderness, none of it was wasted. When God needed someone to lead Israel out of Egypt, Moses knew that desert like the back of his hand. He knew where the water was. He knew where the danger was. God didn't waste any of that. He didn't waste the first 40 years of his life. When God told Moses, write this down, he could. 
because he was in a culture that invented written language in papyrus. Write this down. He could write. Egypt wasn't wasted on Moses in that one little basket. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, Paul was saying, this is the greatest moment, my pivotal moment in my ministry. The, the thing that changed it all for me in my ministry happened here. And what was that? He was in Damascus in a city. They were trying to kill him. He had preached the gospel. They were rejecting him. They wanted to kill him and execute him. And he had to be let down in a basket over a wall. What was probably in that moment the darkest day of his ministry, if not the darkest, one of the darkest But later in his life, he would look back and say, no, no, that basket, nothing was wasted in that basket either. Because after leaving Damascus, he leaves for Asia, for Syria, for, he literally went from there to become one of the greatest missionaries in the history of mankind from a basket. None of it was wasted. Nothing is wasted. The good, the bad, the ugly, See, I was June of 2004 when I bump into Shannon again. I was getting ready to leave town because I was going to uh, take a job at a, at a music business company. It was going to be my first gig as an actual music business guy. Flew to Atlanta. I broke up with a girl that I'd been dating. It didn't take. I had to do it again. But you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I... I had told all of my friends, I'm moving to Atlanta to take this, I'm gonna be a booking agent, because that's what I was told. And I get to Atlanta and find out that I didn't, there was no job, that I wasn't getting a job, that I, I came back with my tail tucked between my legs and embarrassed, and now what am I gonna do? And, and I bump into Shannon. Somehow talk her into marrying me. And about, October of that year, August, I don't remember now, I get a call from that company saying, hey, are you still interested? Because we want you to, we want you to move here. See, my basket, I got let down, I got sold up the river. And if I'd have moved in June of 1994, I would have never married Shannon Anderson. Ethan Tyler wouldn't be sitting on this front row, but my basket got lowered because God knew that there was something he needed to do, needed to do to me, he wanted to do in me because there was something he wanted to do through me. And none of it would have happened if I hadn't been let down in the basket over the wall. (laughs) Set up the river. And everyone in this room, God's got you in a basket of some kind. And as you head into this season of Christmas, It may not look anything like what you think it's supposed to look like, but if you'll put yourself in that basket, it'll look like everything he wants it to look like. And your dreams are nothing compared to God's dreams for you. Stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. I've got to get you out. Heavenly Father. In a room like this, we're full of people with all kinds of questions and baskets of 
baskets in rivers and baskets over walls and baskets that have been taken from us, baskets that unfairly we think unjustly. But we, Lord, you are the God of the basket. You are the God of wasting nothing. And my prayer for our brothers and sisters is we'll just put our trust in you, follow you long enough to see that you see it all and you don't waste any, any of it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.